Very good morning to everyone, and especially if I haven't met you before. Uh, my name is Tim. I'd love to, to talk to you over lunch today and get to know you a little bit more. Uh, we're working through Luke's Gospel at the moment. There's an outline of the talk uh, in the middle that you can follow along as usual, uh, and you can write down any notes there. But I always like to encourage us, as we come back to the Gospels again at the beginning of each year, uh, this is a fantastic time to be, uh, to be inviting your non-Christian friends to come to church uh, and to come face to face with the, the words and the deeds uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do invite them for Christianity Explored starting on Tuesday, but do bring them back to church here next week. It'll be great, isn't it, to, to fill up this room even more. Uh, well, let's, uh, uh, let's turn to God in prayer as we come to his, his word in Luke chapter 10. Isaiah writes, With joy you will draw from the waters of salvation. You will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim his name is exalted. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people this morning. We pray that you would remind us of the joys of salvation, that we may indeed be filled with thanksgiving and be propelled on mission to make known your deeds to all peoples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what words come to your mind as you think of following Jesus on mission. I wonder uh, what uh, feelings come to mind as you think of reaching out with the gospel. Uh, I wonder if you feel uh, disappointment. Perhaps you've uh, tried to bring along a friend to the, to the public lecture last week and they kindly uh, rejected your invitation. Uh, perhaps you feel uh, a sense of reluctance. Uh, you know you're meant to do it uh, and out, perhaps out of a sense of duty you, you, try, you try, but uh, it's more of duty than a willing obedience. Uh, perhaps you feel uh, fear. Uh, afraid of the rejection, afraid of the hostility that you might face, uh, and so you are silent. Uh, well, I know that uh, I personally feel uh, those things quite regularly. I, I live in an apartment block in, in Cheras, and uh, we have some Nepali security guards uh, uh, who, who look after our place. And uh, for nearly a year, I've been meaning to pick up those Nepali tracks that we have and to hand it uh, to the security guards. Well, I left it to the very last minute, uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, the plan was my wife would bake cupcakes, and my job was to take the cupcakes with the tracks and pass them to the security guards. Well, to my shame, it was nearly the stroke of midnight before I finally dragged myself there, reluctant, fearful, uh, and to my shame, I must say. Uh, but I wonder if you ever feel, uh, feel those kind of feelings for yourself. Well, over the past few weeks, Jesus has certainly been uh, seeking to give his disciples a reality check when it comes uh, to doing mission. In chapter 9, verse 51, uh, remember Jesus had turned his face, set it towards Jerusalem. He, he knew what was going to happen to him there. Uh, he knew he would be crucified uh, on the cross and killed. And, and yet, with resolute courage, Jesus had begun uh, his journey. Uh, the first village he entered, a Samaritan village, rejected him. Uh, verses 57 to 62 of chapter, chapter 9, uh, a few would-be disciples come to Jesus. He explains to them the, the suffering and the sacrifice that will be required. 
uh, because following Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom, is going to mean putting him first, above comfort, above family, above everything else. And last week we saw, uh, yes, the, the harvest is, is plentiful, uh, but the workers are few and the mission will be hard. Uh, those who, who go on mission for Jesus will be like, uh, like lambs among wolves. It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? A little young lamb with the wolves pouncing on them. Many will reject us as we go out, uh, even as they reject Christ and God himself. Uh, and uh, in chapters, verses 13 to 16, just before our passage this morning, we saw that's exactly what happened in Jesus' own ministry, whether it was Chorazin, Bethsaida, or Capernaum, all rejected Jesus. Uh, and so if we're feeling a little bit reluctant, we're feeling a little bit fearful, a bit uh, disappointed as we uh, seek to follow him in mission, I think that's totally understandable. And so the question is, what's going to keep us going in mission for Jesus? I mean, if it's, a, if it's simply a matter of uh, uh, gritting our teeth, trying a bit harder, fulfilling our duty, then I doubt we will last very long at all. We will give up on the mission. And what Jesus wants us to understand this morning is that the only thing that's going to keep us going in joyfully proclaiming the gospel is to remember the joy of salvation. To remember the joy of salvation. I wonder if you noticed how joy just dominates uh, our passage this morning. Verse 17, verse 17 uh, the, the, the 72 returned with joy. Uh, verse 20, Jesus says, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In verse 21, Jesus himself rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And verse 23, at the end, that Jesus says, Blessed, uh, happy, joyful, if you like, are the eyes that see what you see. What is going to keep us going in this mission, despite all the difficulties and the setbacks we may face, is to remember the joy of our salvation. Four points this morning. First one from verses 17 to 19. We are to rejoice that Satan has been defeated. Rejoice that Satan has been defeated. Uh, despite the rejection that those 72 may have faced on uh, their mission journey, they return from it absolutely jubilant. Have a look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Uh, the disciples understand where their success has come from. Uh, they address Jesus as Lord, and they recognize these demons have been driven out in his name. The authority comes from him. Uh, and so, of course, we can understand their joy, isn't it? The mission was, was a success. Uh, they had a, a very visible demonstration of the gospel's liberating power as, as they preached the gospel and people were rescued from the very grip of, of evil. And yet Jesus uh, uh, turns to in verse 18 and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning uh, from heaven. Uh, the disciples' uh, mission, Jesus explains, was meant no less than the very defeat of Satan. As the gospel goes out, as people are, are liberated from his control, we see the complete victory that Jesus has come 
uh, to bring. Uh, we get these massive thunderstorms here in KL, don't we? Uh, and the, the bolts of lightning that flash down uh, to the ground. And Jesus says, look, that's what Satan's defeat is like. Swift and sudden, he has fallen. He is defeated. And we see this uh, liberating power of the gospel uh, all the time as we, we see people transformed by the gospel. Uh, we might not see it in that very uh, visible uh, way of demons being driven out, but we do see people, isn't it, previously captive to all manner of sinful desires, uh, following the world, following the devil, and yet freed by the power of the gospel to no longer live in that old life but to live for Jesus as their Lord uh, and Saviour. And so as the gospel goes out, uh, we see the victory of Jesus. We see the defeat of Satan. Uh, if you remember all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, uh, Satan, that, that serpent, had tempted humanity uh, into sin. Ever since, humanity has been held captive under his rule, uh, Slaves of our own sinful desires, uh, an endless struggle between Satan and humanity. And God had prophesied that day, isn't it, in Genesis 3, when one of the, the offspring of the woman would come to crush the Satan. Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And Jesus says, look, that day... <laughs> has arrived. Satan is falling. Uh, indeed, verse 18, Jesus goes on. Uh, sorry, verse 19, Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, uh, in some churches in America, you'll find people take this very literally, isn't it? As they, they go to church and they've got all the snakes there and they, they think nothing will happen and occasionally one gets bitten and tragically they pass away. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Right? This is figurative uh, language. Thankfully we don't have any uh, big pythons here this morning. Uh, what Jesus is saying here is that as the gospel goes out, as, as we go out on mission proclaiming the kingdom, Satan's defeat has arrived. He is the great serpent. And he is defeated. Now, of course, ultimately it is Jesus who brings this victory, isn't it? Uh, we've already seen in Luke's Gospel Jesus' refusal to give in to Satan's temptations for, for 40 days in the wilderness. We'll see in Gethsemane he will resist the temptation even as, as, as sweats of, of, of blood come from his face. In the end, Jesus will go to the cross there to rescue uh, rescue the world from Satan's deadly grasp. Uh, Colossians puts it in this way. Uh, Jesus has cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, as Jesus dies on the cross, uh, our sins are forgiven. Satan's power is disarmed. No longer can he come and, and accuse us and say, look, you deserve the judgment of God because Jesus has borne that judgment and he rose again victorious. Satan defeated. Satan trampled. Satan a defeated enemy. 
And so as we go out proclaiming the gospel, like those 72 uh, in Luke chapter 10, we trample down Satan as people are rescued, liberated from his control. Uh, indeed, Jesus says, uh, verse 18, there, uh, verse 19 at the end, nothing shall hurt you. It's as if uh, uh, as we go out on this mission, we are invincible. Now, of, of course, Jesus doesn't mean here that uh, as you go out on mission that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Uh, there's never going to be any setbacks or, 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 or difficulties. I mean, Jesus has just spent a whole chapter, isn't it, uh, explaining all the difficulties that you're going to face on mission, sheep among wolves, uh, and the rest. Indeed, as we read on in, in the book of Acts, we'll see exactly what happens to all of these disciples as they are persecuted violently and many of them are actually put to death. But here is the point that Jesus is making here. In the end, as we go out on mission, disciples of Jesus are invincible. They are invincible. They cannot be touched, ultimately, by Satan. You see, we might be mocked, we might be discriminated against, we might be verbally abused, we might even be violently attacked or even killed for our faith. But really, that's the best that Satan can do, isn't it? He can't, he can't touch us ultimately. He can't touch us eternally. I mean, even if we are martyred for following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, our death is but the door, is it not, to his glorious kingdom where everything will be perfect forever. I mean, Satan, we often think, is this fiery lion, isn't it? Walking around, ready to consume us. And yet, it would seem here that he's, he's like a lion with no teeth, a lion with no paws. He cannot touch us, ultimately, if we are a Christian. And I think this truth should give us great joy. Because we know no matter what setbacks we face as we proclaim Jesus, we can be absolutely confident, can't we? Satan is defeated. He's been conquered once for all at the cross. And we await that glorious day when he returns. And all, and Satan and all his forces are thrown into the lake of fire uh, forever. Uh, point number one, we rejoice that Satan has been defeated. Uh, well, as uh, joyful as that is, isn't it, that Satan stands defeated, uh, that the gospel powerfully liberates people from Satan's grasp, uh, the Christian source of, of joy, uh, in the end, is, is not meant to be that. Where our focus is not to be on the success of our mission in the end, but on the destination we are headed to. So point two, we are to rejoice that our salvation is assured. We are to rejoice our salvation is assured. Jesus goes on, verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written uh, in heaven. Uh, you might remember at the last uh, general election here, uh, one of the security mechanisms that they uh, introduced was that indelible ink, wasn't it? Meant to put on your hand so you couldn't vote twice, couldn't be rubbed off. Uh, we all know it had its problems at the time, don't we? Uh, but we get the idea, isn't it? Ink that cannot be erased. Uh, and and, and yet the Bible in its original language here uh, means something like that. Our names stand, not only stand written in heaven, but they will continue to be written forever and ever. And, and here is the source of the Christian's true joy. 
Our names are written, if you like, in indelible ink in the book of life, never to be erased, never to be blotted out, completely secure. Uh, if you like, in the, in the wedding banquet of, of heaven, our names are already on the guest list. Our, our name cards are already on the table. Our place is guaranteed. We're waiting for it. And, and that should be a source of great joy for us, isn't it? I mean, in our world today, people fear death. In the face of death, they find no hope. And driven by fear, therefore, they, they seek success and they avoid failure at all costs. And yet not the Christian. Because we have this unshakable hope of a glorious future kingdom where, where sin will be overthrown forever, where death will be no more, where we will stand in heaven at that great banquet. Uh, Peter writes of this, this great joy in his, his letter. He says, In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. Uh, Jesus reminds them, look, don't, don't just focus on the ministry success. Here is the ultimate joy. Your salvation is assured. Your hope is certain. Your future is secure. Uh, and here is a lesson I think we all need to learn. Uh, and that is that our, our identity as Christians, our destiny as Christians is much more important than the success or the failure of the ministry that we're involved in. Uh, here's the problem, of course, with focusing on ministry success. I mean, it's good to have success in ministry, isn't it? We want people to become Christians. We want them to, to be growing in their knowledge and love of God. Uh, and that's why Jesus wants us to pray for it. That's why Jesus wants us to labor in this mission task. But the problem is, if our primary focus is on on the success or failure, instead of on our relationship with Christ, then if the ministry succeeds, the temptation will be to be proud. If the ministry fails, then the temptation will be to despair. Here is the true fountain of joy in the Christian life. To remember, our names are written in heaven. Whether there's a mass revival or we're rejected by everyone. It doesn't matter. Our place in heaven is secure. We are loved by God. I wonder when is the last time that we rejoiced and thanked God for the salvation that he has given us. I wonder when is the last time as we, we considered that glorious future that awaits us, that it moved us to, to sheer joy and thanksgiving to God. Uh, we really cannot hope to press on in this mission or in the Christian life unless we come back again and again and again to remember the joy of our salvation. Uh, in fact, even Jesus himself, did you notice, rejoices uh, at the salvation of his people. Uh, we're at point three now. Rejoice that God has graciously revealed himself. Uh, verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, thank, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
Uh, notice, firstly, the, the work of the, the Spirit here, uh, stirring up this joy in Christ to praise God. Notice who Jesus prays to. He prays to the Father, with whom he enjoys this intimate relationship. He prays to the Lord of heaven and earth, the, the one who is utterly sovereign in all things. And notice what Jesus thanks God for at the end of the verse there, that God's gracious will is done. Uh, interesting, isn't it? What brings Jesus the greatest joy is when God's good will is completed. And did you see what that will is in that verse? God's will is that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Uh, Jesus wants us to be very clear here that God is utterly sovereign when it comes to our salvation. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, why, why is it that some reject the gospel and others accept it? I mean, of course, people make real decisions, don't they? Uh, people will choose their idols over Jesus. Perhaps they don't want to give up. Uh, they don't want Jesus controlling their career. They don't want Jesus interfering with their finances. Uh, they don't want him causing trouble in their family. They don't want him to control their sexual life or whatever it is. And so they reject Jesus uh, to live for themselves. And of course, they're real decisions. And, and that is why in, in, in Luke chapter 10, they're held responsible for those decisions. And there is a judgment day that is coming. Uh, indeed, we saw in verses 13 to 16 that Jesus pronounces judgment on those cities that rejected him. And yet, at the very same time, Jesus explains to us that even though they're making these very real choices as to how they respond to Jesus, ultimately, whether or not someone turns to Jesus is God's decision and his alone. God has purposely decided to hide the gospel from the wise and understanding and to reveal it to little children or to, to babies. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't think. I mean, elsewhere, Jesus says, he commands us, you know, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, but also with all of our, all of our minds. We're to love God with everything. Of course, we are to think as Christians. That's not the point here. But God has purposely designed things so that receiving salvation is not a matter of, of how smart you are, how many degrees you have, how wealthy you are, how successful you are, or anything else like that. God has chosen to reveal himself only to those who will be like little children, like babies, completely dependent uh, on him. Uh, let me illustrate it with an example. I mean, uh, you can't simply uh, decide, isn't it, that you want to be some part of someone else's family. Uh, so you walk up to them, you say, you know, look how smart I am. Look how intelligent I am. Look how many degrees that I am. You are under obligation to invite me to be part of your family. And it doesn't work like that, does it? I mean, when it comes to, to adoption, none of those things matter at all. It doesn't matter how smart, how intellectual, or whatever else. If someone is adopted, it's completely dependent, isn't it, on the decision of the parents and nothing else. In other words, our salvation is purely in the end by God's grace. Jesus says, yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. 
And so if we are a Christian, we must know it's not because we were smarter. It's not because we were more spiritual than others that we were able to work it out. It's in fact the exact opposite of all of that. God has chosen us in such a way that it is absolutely clear that our salvation had nothing to do with me. Uh, We actually saw the same in the Old Testament readings, didn't we? God explains to his people there in Deuteronomy, uh, it wasn't because they were more numerous that God chose them. It wasn't because they were more, the very righteous that God chosen. In fact, it was exactly the opposite of those things. So that it would be clear that God had graciously loved them and chosen them simply because he decided to do so. And so do you see why Jesus rejoices here? Because it means that all the glory goes to his heavenly Father. God receives all the praise. And that is what Jesus desires above everything else, that God get the glory. And so as we consider our own salvation, that our our names are written in heaven, it should move us, isn't it, like Jesus, to praise God, to thank him for his grace towards us, because if it was up to us in any way, we would have never had a place up there in heaven with him. But as Jesus continues here, he wants us to see our knowledge of God is not simply dependent on the Father's decision, but also on his own decision as well. Notice how he goes on there in verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Son, except No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, It's a magnificent statement, isn't it, in Luke's Gospel, of the the total authority, the the absolute centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Notice the ordering of the Trinity here. The Father handing all things over to the Son. Notice the intimacy within the within the Trinity, this mutual relationship between the Father and the Son. But notice also the centrality of Jesus. No one knows the Father, who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, if we know God as our Father, it's only because Jesus has graciously chosen to reveal him to us. In other words, there's no other way that we can have a relationship with God except through Jesus. You cannot know God through other religions. You cannot know God through your your philosophical arguments. We cannot know God simply by looking at the creation alone. It is through Jesus, through Jesus alone, that we can come to know God as our Heavenly Father. And that is, of course, why this Jesus' mission is so important, why knowing him is so crucial, because so long as people do not know Jesus, they do not know God the Father, and so long as they do not know Jesus or God the Father, they are his enemies headed for his judgment. Here is the reason, isn't it, why we must go into all the world, to every tribe and nation and language with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because all authority has been given to Jesus. And Jesus alone is the one who can save us, rescue us from Satan's grasp, and ensure our names are written in heaven to live with God for eternity. 
And once again, these truths should, should fill us up with joy. But they should also propel us onto the mission field. Because if God has sovereignly intervened and, and revealed himself to us, then we also know it is only if he does the same for others that they too can come to know him. And it gives us great hope as well, isn't it? Because it, it doesn't matter how hard-hearted hard or how close to the gospel someone may seem at the time, if salvation is God's choice, there is always hope. There is always hope God could intervene and change their hearts to him. We should rejoice. God has graciously revealed himself to us. Uh, well, finally, we should rejoice in the privilege of mission. Rejoice in the privilege of mission. Verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. It's very easy, isn't it, to underestimate the absolute privilege of knowing Jesus Christ and being called to be a part of his mission. I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, they saw these great visions, they saw amazing miracles, uh, they saw God's power at work. Jesus says, no, don't look at them. You are much more privileged than every one of them. Uh, your blessing is greater. Your joy should be fuller. You have more than all of them put together. We live in the age of salvation. We live in the times of fulfillment. We live. Everything in the Old Testament was leading up to this glorious point when the Messiah would appear, when salvation would come to, to all the nations, when God's glorious, global, universal kingdom would be established. And these 72 disciples at this turning point in history had the absolute privilege of witnessing it with their very own eyes. Evil overthrown, sin forgiven, the kingdom dawning as God entered our world to perfectly reveal God to all who will humbly bend the knee before him. I mean, what a privilege indeed. What a blessing. Uh, Peter writes, look, even angels long to look into these things. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, look, long ago in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. What a privilege for these 72 to see God himself walking the earth in all of his glory, in all of his magnificence, God revealed finally and fully in all of his authority. And yet, of course, as we go back to the Old Testament scriptures and we examine what they were all about, we see, actually, that world mission was always at the forefront of God's plan. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? All nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. Remember what God said of his, of his suffering servant, Isaiah 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Ever since the fall of humanity, because of the Satan in Genesis chapter 3, 
God's glorious plan has to be to be to reverse the curse of the fall to bring blessing to the nations. And, and Jesus says, look, that day has dawned. You've seen it with your own eyes. Uh, if you flick forward to Luke chapter 24, our last passage for today, Luke 24 and verse 44, this is exactly what Jesus says the Old Testament is all about. He appears to the eleven in the upper room. And verse 44, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, that's what the Old Testament was all about. The Messiah coming to die and rise that the gospel may go to the world. And so these 72 see in this absolutely privileged position that the beginning of that mission, the beginning of that mission, as they proclaim the gospel. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. But here's the thing. How much more privileged are we than those 72 disciples? We who live this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we who have seen with our own eyes the gospel transform the world. I mean, you fly over to East Malaysia on a plane, you get in a car, you drive for 10 hours, you get into a boat, you paddle up the river, you jungle trekking through the mountains, and there in the very, <laughs> with no one else around at all, we find there a church. You find Christians. The gospel has truly gone out. Everywhere, we are privileged indeed, blessed indeed. And this sense of privilege ought to fill us with a tremendous joy. The thing about privilege, isn't it, is it's easy to take for granted. Over time, it's easy to think that a privilege is a right, that we deserve it, that it's the norm. We begin to feel entitled. Instead of feeling joyful, we complain. We grumble, we are discontent. We need to stop again and consider the absolute privilege that we have. Privilege to hear the gospel. Privilege to have the word of God in our very own language that we can read. Privilege to be able to speak this message of eternal life to those around us. So many people in our world do not have those privileges that we have. And it is only as we realize just how privileged we are, not only to, to live in this age of salvation, but to be able to proclaim this glorious gospel message, surely then the mission will not simply be a duty. It will not simply be a responsibility undertaken with guilt or, or reluctance or anything else, but a sheer joy a sheer privilege. Uh, I need to remind myself of these things very often indeed. I wonder if you do as well. What's going to keep us going in the mission of Jesus? What's going to keep us going when we feel afraid, 
when we feel reluctant, when we feel disappointed? What's going to stop us from thinking of mission as a duty or a task? It is to remember the joy of salvation. Evil is overthrown forever. Our names are written in heaven. We've been drawn into an intimate relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth. We've been recruited to labor in his harvest field, bringing the gospel to the nations as God has always promised. I wonder, do we know the joy of salvation? And maybe this, uh, this morning that there are people among us uh, who are searching for this kind of joy in life. Uh, we often look for happiness, don't we, in all kinds of places. We see here this morning, this is the only place where true joy is to be found. You will never find it in your career. You will never find it simply in your family. The only place of true joy is to know Jesus to have your sins forgiven, to live in this great mission. Will you turn to him as your Lord this morning? Will you join him in this mission? And for those of us who know this joy of salvation, personally for ourselves, will we, will we continue to go out in this mission field when we're afraid to speak up in the office? May this joy propel us to speak of Jesus, when we're reluctant to invite our, our friend to Christianity Explored on Tuesday night, may this joy of salvation propel us on to invite them along. When we're disappointed at the rejection of our, of our family and friends in Chinese New Year coming up, may this joy of salvation propel us on to keep persevering in praying and proclaiming this good news. And whether the mission feels like a success or feels like a failure, may we remember always our names are written in heaven. We've been saved by Jesus. We have a, a, a wonderful blessing. We have a glorious future. What a privilege it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to be called to participate in his global mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you so much for the joy of salvation. We thank you that the Lord Jesus came just as you promised to defeat evil forever and to open up the way for us to enter your heavenly kingdom. We thank you for this intimate relationship that we can share with you as your children and that we can participate in this amazing mission that transforms lives. And Father, we pray that you'd help each and every one of us this morning when we're feeling afraid or reluctant or disappointed to remember again the joy of our salvation, the privilege it is to proclaim the Lord Jesus. And we do pray that many more workers would be thrust out into the harvest field, that 
that the Lord Jesus, that many more will turn to the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and have their names written in heaven as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.